0: First off, a special welcome into town to Mr. and Mrs. Greenwald Sr. Welcome back. Special thank you to our anonymous sponsor this evening, who is sponsoring the class in honor of the amazing community. So thank you to whoever you are. So nice, Baruch Hashem, the dinner is behind us. I think the one good thing about that is we don't have Brian walking around taking pictures. (laughs) So we can actually concentrate on what we're learning. Let's also have in mind this evening that the learning should be for the ilui neshama of Mr. Greenwald's grandmother, Chava Bas Chayim Shaya. The neshama should have an aliyah. Topic tonight is the bliss of ignorance. We've all heard the uh, the phrase that ignorance is bliss. Is that true from a Torah perspective? On one hand, Shlomo Hamelach seems to support this. He writes in the first parak of Koheles, Kiverov chochma rov kas. for as wisdom grows, Anger grows. The Yosef das, Yosef machov. And the more learning increases, the more pain there is. So it sounds like Shlomo HaMelech is telling us, Ignorance is bliss. The more you know, the more angry you are. The more chachma, the more wisdom I have, the more pain I have. What in the world does that mean? Generally, we seem to be a religion... Where we're the people of the book We're all about learning There's a piece in the Peleoyotes Peleoyotes is the, one of the great Sephardi authorities of the 1800s He has a piece where he speaks about arrogance And he quotes this line of Kohelis, And he explains it as follows He says, the more we know the more in tune we are with ourselves and our capacities and the abilities that we have to to grow and achieve higher levels, the more pain we're able to feel when we realize we're not really maxing out, we're not pushing that hard. So the more in tune I am with what I can do, the more pain I feel when I realize I'm not doing it. So ignorance might be blissful, and the more we understand our own capacity, the more pain we might feel. But says the Kotzke Rebbe, even though that might be true, we still have to keep on learning, even though that might cause more pain, even though by becoming more conscious of ourselves and we're in touch with our, our, our subconscious motivations, that might bring me to a state of, of, of depression almost... But that's okay, we have to keep on pushing and growing even if that might cause more pain. What I want to explore tonight is the idea known in the world of psychology as cognitive dissonance. We find many examples throughout the Torah and it's something that comes up probably almost every day of our lives where it's one thing to live in a state of ignorance and that might be somewhat serene But I'll tell you what's torturous. What's torturous is pretending or fooling myself that I'm ignorant when deep down inside I know the truth. Or doing something that I'm convincing myself is the right thing to do, although I really know it's not. And this brings us to the whole conversation of cognitive dissonance. I want to go through a couple of examples throughout history and a couple of sources from the Torah's perspective and see how we could use this interesting principle in psychology as actually a way of enhancing our Vodas Hashem. When I lived in Queens, I would walk every Shabbos, about a mile and a half, to a, a Svarty Shul in Jamaica States, and I would give a sheer Shabbos afternoon. And I noticed there were all these signs on the, by the bus stops and big, big signs throughout the uh, the big streets, talking about May 21st, May 21st, 2011. That was Doomsday. That was the day where the whole world would be destroyed. That was the day of judgment. That was the day where everything comes to a halting end. And I would walk past these signs every Shabbos, the months leading up to May. And I was thinking to myself, what are they going to do with these signs, May 22nd? (laughs) So it was like May 24th on a Shabbos. Nothing happened. The sign's still there. It was there for a few more weeks. And I was thinking to myself, the people who put so much time, effort, and money into publicizing to the world... That we're all going to die and judgment day is approaching. How do they feel? Does that shake their emuna? Does that shake your faith? I looked into it a little bit and I realized this is not the first time that someone was predicting a, a doomsday that didn't come to fruition. In 1954, There is a small group of people led by Dorothy Martin where she predicted that doomsday would be December 21st, 1954. She was a Chicago housewife who claimed to experimented with automatic writing, somehow receiving messages from an alien planet known as Clairon. It sounds more like a makeup than a planet, (laughs) Right. And people, for some reason, they were attracted to her group and to her whole little philosophy. They left their jobs, they left their school, they left their spouses. They gave her tons of money to join the group, to prepare themselves to be saved by a flying saucer. Now, there is a young Jewish man. At the time, he was not yet well known. Leon Fetzinger, and he was interested in the whole idea of cognitive dissonance. He really made that that phrase famous. So he was sitting at home one day, and he looked at the newspaper, and he saw the title, Prophecy from Planet Claron, Call to City, Flee that Flood. So he was curious to see what's going on. He reads the article, he finds out about Dorothy Martin, And this is right up his alley. I would love to interview these people, ask them what they're thinking, how do they know it's true, and all the build-up until December 21st, and then hopefully speak to them afterwards and see how did they deal with disappointment. So before December 20th, the group was very closed. They weren't there to convert others. They didn't want anybody from the media coming in you had to pretend that you were a true believer of the group to be led inside to be able to ask questions. So, Fitzinger, together with his team, some of them were able to pretend, I guess, well enough to be able to ask questions. And uh, during the times leading up to December 21st, there were more messages through automatic writing to explain the details of the disaster, the reason for its occurrence, and the manner in which the group would be saved miraculously from this flying saucer comes along December 20th, and the group was told through the message received from Dorothy that a visitor from outer space would call upon them at midnight, and he would escort them to the spacecraft waiting outside. As instructed, the group took off anything that was metallic, from rings to zippers to other objects, that had to be discarded, of course, before going on a UFO. This is just basics. <laughs> <laughs> and they're ready to go, awaiting eagerly the, the most awesome experience of their life. 12.05 rolls around. When The spaceship's supposed to be there at 12. It's already five minutes late. And there's no visitor. There's no one there to take them to the, uh, the UFO. Someone in the group notices that there's actually another clock as well in the room that says 11.55. So there's no need to fret. That clock is fast. Obviously, this clock is right. 12.10 rolls around. All the clocks are clearly past 12. I guess they didn't quote the verse in the Bible, kachatzos halayla, it's around midnight. Not exactly midnight. The group sits in stunned silence. Fast forward four hours, it's now 4 a.m. in the morning, and there's only a few hours until the world is supposed to be destroyed. They're trying to find explanations, they're looking around for people, maybe the alien can't find us. At that point, Dorothy Martin, she begins to cry. However, Baruch Hashem, at 4.45 a.m., she receives another message through writing. And in that message, she's informed, and this is a quote from Mrs. Martin's: the little group sitting all night long had spared, has spread so much light that God had saved the world from destruction. And they were, they were so happy to see that the efforts that they put in were able to save the world. That afternoon on December 21st, although before they would push away media, they were very closed into themselves, they invited interviews and they wanted to spread their urgent campaign to make sure everyone in the world was aware that this group was able to save the world from destruction because of their their loyalty and commitment to whatever it was. Festinger in his research he was, he was very much anticipating the response of the group and he was curious to see if anybody would be shaken by the, the prediction not coming to fruition. And he records that if anything people were more steadfast in their belief. They were more committed. The way he explained it is that whenever there's a conflict of what I assumed to be the truth and then something flies in the face of that assumed truth. So then, by definition, there's an there's a internal contradiction. And we're not good with those contradictions, so we have to resolve them somehow. Now, one way to potentially answer that, that inconsistency is by saying to ourselves, you know what, I guessed whatever I was thinking before is probably not true or I assume my belief system I had before is clearly, it's not right. That's one way to solve inconsistency. But that's not very easy to do. We have a very hard time looking back into our lives and saying I was living a lie. So the other option is somehow take the new information and rationalize it and explain why it's really not in conflict to my prior belief system. And that's exactly what they did. And that explains the urgency of why they had to share it with the world. Because I need confirmation. If we could somehow convert others and get them on board, that gives me more of a security in my own belief. Parenthetically, I think that's why you find with people who are becoming balay there's a strong desire to, to bring their families along with them. Part of that is because I I care about my my parents and I care about my my brother and my sister and and I want them to to appreciate the truth like I do. But part of it is, I'm not 100% sold myself and I still have insecurities. If I could get other people on board with me so that it makes it more real for me. We have the seventh makkah the seventh plague that takes place at the end of this week's Parsha. The plague of Borod, a very intense hail. The Torah tells us that Moshe made it very clear to Paro and all of Egypt that if you want your servants and your animals to stay alive, bring them inside. They're going to be safe inside. If you leave them outside, they will be killed. <speaking> So those who feared the word of Hashem from the servants of Paro, they brought in their servants and their animals. But those who did not pay attention to the word of Hashem, they left their animals and their their servants in the field. Why would they do that? So the Dasa Kadim explains. <laughs> it was based on their wickedness that they left their animals and their slaves out in the field. <laughs> and they didn't believe in Hashem. They didn't take Moshe's warning to heart. So picture the scene for a moment. You're sitting there having breakfast with your spouse an Egyptian couple, and the wife turns to the husband. Honey, do me a favor. When you go outside to uh, take out the garbage, can you also make sure to bring in the servants and the animals? What are you talking about? They belong outside. Well, I just read in the paper this morning, the Egyptian Times, that uh, Moshe is, is uh, he's saying there's a seventh plague And it's going to be a devastation. And if we don't bring in the animals and the servants, they're all going to die. Honey, (laughs) come on, are you serious? A plague, supernatural, it's going to destroy everything. You are so silly. And she turns to her husband. He's six for six, honey. He's six for six. We we don't know exactly what to believe, but, but he's doing something right. Isn't it just better safe than sorry? Bring in the animals. Let's keep our servants. Why wouldn't you want to do that? I don't believe in Moshe. I don't believe in Hashem. But it makes sense. It makes sense to at least be on the safe side. Maybe he's right. At least bring in your animals to be safe. The answer is, if I'm telling myself I don't believe in that worldview, to do anything to the contrary is causing that conflict. So even though logically it makes so much sense, why take a chance? Maybe Moshe will be right for a seventh time. Don't lose all of your assets. But I can't allow myself to do that because then I'm giving in. Then I'm agreeing to something that I don't really want to believe in. So those who were Rishoyim, those who were so set in their ways of denying Hashem and His Torah, they couldn't bring themselves to do that which was beneficial for themselves. That would cause internal conflict, and I can't stand conflict. We've spoken before about Shabtai Tzvi. Tzvi, as a quick recap, he was born in 1626 in Turkey. And as a young man, he was known to be very bright. And already when he was in his later teens, he got very into Kabbalah. And he attracted a group of followers, and they really thought very highly of this young man. The way they would describe Shabtai Tzvi is that he would have days upon days where he would be up 24 hours a day in this manic state accomplishing more than we've ever seen before it was incredible and then he would like go into hiding for a few days and we wouldn't even know where he was so before understanding the idea of bipolar or the manic depressant issues that some have they assumed he was almost supernatural he had these tremendous co-hosts to be able to stay up and learn and, and deliver all of these wonderful Kabbalistic speeches, and then he would go run off somewhere. They assumed he was probably deep in meditation or somehow communicating with Hashem. In 1648, Shabtai Tzvi declared himself Mashiach. Now knowing a little bit of history, 1648 was after devastation in the Jewish world And there was a yearning, there was a longing for redemption. It was a time where the idea of Mashiach was was being spoken about, and there was hope. Shabtai Tzvi had a little bit of a following. He was charismatic, and uh, he declared himself the Mashiach. He spent much of the 1650s traveling throughout Greece and Turkey on the Mashiach tour, And eventually he was expelled from a few different Jewish communities as the leading rabbis of the communities you could assume were a little bit concerned with him being there. In the 1660s he arrived in Egypt via Israel and in 1665 was the day his career was taken to a new level. He met up with a fellow known as Nathan, Nathan of Gaza. And uh, Nathan was a self-proclaimed prophet, and he felt that he was here to usher in Mashiach, and Mashiach was Shabtai Tzvi. So there was a dynamic duo. At that point, like any uh, false messiah throughout history, once you have a good marketing agent, then you can really make it big. In September of 1665, um, Nathan took it to the next level, He announced that a fundamental cosmic shift had taken place or will take place within the year without any war, without any bloodshed, but Shabdai Tzvi would take the the Turkish sultan's crown and make the sultan his servant. Stop the music. (laughs) At that point, if I was Shabdai Tzvi, I'd say, Nathan, if we're going too far, (laughs) this is not going to be good for us. And it was not good for them. The sultan uh, was a little bit disturbed by the power that they felt they deserved. And eventually, in 1666, Shabtai Tzvi was arrested in Constantinople. Uh, he was placed in prison. When he was in prison, he replaced the fast of Tisha B'Av with celebration. He claimed to have been born on Tisha B'Av, as Mashiach is supposed to be born on Tisha B'Av. He uh, He would sign his letters... I am the Lord your God Dearly, warmly, Shabtai tzvi. So he took it way too far I am the Lord thy God So most of the Jewish world at this point Was convinced he was not Mashiach The Makkah Was when he was called before the Sultan And the Sultan gave him the following choice As sadly many Jews have received throughout history You could either convert to Islam or we'll kill you. And at that moment Shaptai Tzvi said, Call me Aziz Muhammad Infin. I'm in. So you would assume at that point all of his, all of his followers now understood that he was not Mashiach and he was just the crazy guy who had these uh, dreams of, of grandeur. Here's the amazing thing. They still had a group of followers. Even once Shabtai Tzvi converted to Islam, you still had a group of followers and they were convincing themselves, this is just part of the, uh, the pangs of Mashiach. This is part of the challenge of being true believers. Why, why didn't they get the message? Why didn't they realize once this person converts to Islam, he's probably not the real deal? Why didn't they get that? And it's the same reason why the Egyptian husband would gladly take out the garbage, but he's not going to bring in his animals, and he's not going to bring in his slaves. Because once I believe something to be true, I have a very difficult time doing anything that would now contradict my prior belief. This goes back to the beginning of time. The famous discussion between Chava and the Nachash, between Chava and the snake. The snake tells Chava in source number 7 that uh, what's going on over here? What exactly did Hashem say? Did He say you can't eat from any of the trees? And Chava says back, no, we're allowed to eat from all of the trees. It just happens to be the Eitz Hadas. Hashem said, don't eat from it and don't touch it because we might die. So, the snake said back to Chava, You're not going to die. Don't be silly. Hashem knows that when you eat from it, then you'll know the difference between Tov and Ra. And therefore, he wants to keep you away from the Eitz Hadas because he doesn't want competition. And we know the end of the story. It looks delicious and there are other motivations there as well And she ends up eating from the Eitz Hadass And sharing it lovingly with her husband So Rashi explains based on the Midrashim That the snake was trying to prove to Chava That Hashem never said You can't eat from the tree and you can't touch the tree Because the snake actually pushed her into the tree And nothing happened So Chava noticed that, and the snake said, you see, just like touching the tree will not result in death, so too eating from the tree. Hashem was lying because He was afraid of you becoming too great. So let's take a step back for a moment. When did Hashem ever tell Chava, you cannot touch the tree? Never happened. Only thing Hashem said was, don't eat from the Eitzhadas. That was the only restriction. So where did she get this idea from, I can't even touch it? She made it up herself. She assumed that if Hashem is telling me I can't eat from the tree, it's probably not just the fruit that are poisonous or something like that. It must be the entire tree is bad, and therefore I can't even touch it. That was her own logical extension. The Nachash said to Chava, you see, you can touch the tree and nothing happens. You could also eat from the tree. Now, most people, we would assume at that point, would not conclude that Hashem was lying. Rather, they would conclude, you know what, maybe my extension I made wasn't accurate. Maybe when Hashem said, don't touch the tree, all he don't eat from the tree, rather, all He meant was, don't eat from the tree. Maybe I am allowed to touch the tree, and that's why nothing happened. Why didn't she come to that conclusion? Why did she agree with the nachash? Yeah, it Must be Hashem is is lying? Because once she arrived at that idea, once she came to that belief that the whole thing is poisonous and I can't touch it, it was almost impossible for her to go back and contradict what she thought beforehand. That's the power of not wanting to be inconsistent. If we believe something, if we feel something to be true, if we've had this in mind our entire lives, we cannot go back. What I want to address here is why. Why do we work like that? Why can't we stand in consistency? Why do we have such a hard time with, with conflict? The answer is by Shlomo HaMelech. He writes in Koheles, Asher Adam Yashar, because Hashem created the human being straight. Every single human being on planet Earth because of the neshama, because of the the purity that, that makes up our essence, we need to feel like we're doing the right thing. That's why whenever we have a sense of a conflict, that I'm doing one thing but I really believe something else, that kills me, that destroys me. Because Hashem made me straight. I don't want to live with inconsistency. I don't want to live with conflict, and therefore I'll do whatever it takes. I'll rationalize, I'll make up stories just to somehow solve that conflict within my own mind. My stepfather passed away about 14 years ago. And he was not a religious man, but a very, very special person, very ehrlich, very honest. He tried to do things, everything by the book, never cutting corners. And when I was first becoming more religious, I remember we, were, we had a Shabbos dinner together. I must have been maybe 14, 15 at the time. And we were having a conversation, And he said something, and I told him, that's lush and horror. Now being a naive young man, that was probably not the right move. However, I was young and foolish, so I I criticized my stepfather. (laughs) I didn't think that much of it at the time, I'm I'm doing the right thing, He's, he's saying something negative about somebody else, so I gotta correct the situation. I've never seen the man get that angry in my life. He was livid. And for a few days, he wouldn't even speak to me. And I didn't get it. I remember at the time, like, what's going on? Is this so not like him? Baruch Hashem, things settled down and, and life went back to normal. Years later, when you know, he was very ill, and he never got into Judaism, But he really had this thing about learning the laws of and Hara. He actually brought up with me, this is probably eight months or so before he passed away, he said, Noah, can can you remember we had the conversation before about and Hara? What exactly does that mean? And I was at first surprised, like, you want to get back into that? Do you want to go there right now? But he, he was so eager to learn about what exactly is Lashon Hara, when is it permissible, when is it totally Osir, what are different cases, the idea of, of, of sharing negative information, if it's Latawelis, if it's beneficial. Till his dying day, he had with him the book, The Power of Words by Zelig Pliskin. And, and he was just intrigued by the whole idea. And I was confused. I was thinking to myself, out of all the things within Judaism, the one area, the one mitzvah that you're really connecting with is the same exact mitzvah that you got so angry with me when I was trying to correct you. But you believe in that. You, You love the idea of not gossiping. So why did he get so angry back then? I think the answer is simple. Because the more I feel something is true, the more an idea resonates within me. If you point out to me that I'm not doing what I feel I should be doing, the natural reaction is to get mad. Not because I'm mad at you, although I am, but I'm mad with myself. And therefore that expresses as anger at the person who brought it up. Now it was not the right thing to do to bring it up And that's a whole different discussion When do you correct somebody When you know they're doing something wrong And what what position are you in to do such a thing That's a whole separate conversation But it dawned on me, looking back at it The reason why that made him so angry And so disturbed more than anything else Is because that was a mitzvah He really understood and believed in Aesop's Fables Ever read Aesop's Fables? So one of the famous stories Is about the fox and the grapes. The fox who longed for grapes Beholds with pain The tempting clusters Too high to gain Grieved in his heart He forced a careless smile And cried They're sharp and hardly worth my while Ever heard the term sour grapes? This is where it comes from. Sour grapes comes from the wolf in Aesop's fables. Why did the wolf have to convince himself the grapes were sour? Because he realized he couldn't get them. Part of this whole internal conflict we go through sometimes with cognitive dissonance is when I know I want to be doing something or I know I need to be doing something or should be doing something and I can't do it, Oftentimes, we have to explain to ourselves, it's not worth it anyway. I don't need that thing. I don't need that person. One of the most famous examples of this we find is regarding Esau. Once Esau sells the rights to the Bukhara to Yaakov, it says, he takes the lentils, the Yochal, the Yeish, he eats and he drinks, the Yokom the Yelech, and he gets up the yive's asavasa bukhara and then he disgraces the bukhara according to many it's not explaining why he sold it in the first place it's not saying because he didn't value it therefore he sold it for a bowl of soup it's saying once he sold it then the yive's asavasa bukhara he had to view it as worth nothing because i no longer have it We convince ourselves that we don't like things we can't have, and we also convince ourselves that we don't like people who are somehow reminding me that I'm not doing something that I think is true. You hear that? We don't like people who are somehow that bitter source that's just knocking it into my head, I'm not doing something that I think I should be doing. The Midrash tells us that when Avram Avinu was trying to change the world, so we would have assumed that most people see this crazy guy standing in the middle of midtown Manhattan, preaching about monotheism, talking about things we've never heard of before. How many people stop to engage him? When you're walking past that guy in the soapbox, you're all going to hell! Repent! So do you, do you pull over and say, excuse me, I disagree vehemently, I think you're wrong based on four points? You just pretend not to see him and you keep on walking. Yet the Chazal tell us that people during the times of Avraham Avinu, they had to engage him and they had to make fun of him. They were to call him names and to mock him and to ridicule him. Why are you doing all of this? Just ignore the guy. He's an individual. He's fighting against the entire world. He's obviously crazy. Why do you have to make fun of him? Because what he was saying was words of truth. And words of truth penetrate anybody. Even people living 3,800 years ago who are steeped in a society of paganism and barbarism. When I hear words of Hashem Echad and I hear the explanations of Avraham Avinu, I can't ignore it. The one thing in life a human being cannot ignore is truth. Can't ignore truth, because Asal Kim Adam Yasher Hashem made me straight. So when I hear truth, I can't ignore it. I could either do one of two things: I could either listen to it, Shema Yisrael, listen to the truth. And embrace it and live by it? Or I could try my best to fight against it and ridicule it so I don't really have to believe it's true. But I can't ignore it. There's an awesome example of this when the brothers of Yosef move to Mitzrayim. After Yosef reveals himself to his brothers and they're going to live in Egypt, so Yosef is prepping his brothers what to tell Paro regarding where you want to live. Tell Pari you want to live in Goshen because your shepherds and your father and your grandfather, you come from a whole dynasty of shepherds. And that way he will gladly give you the whole region of Goshen. Torah says, (laughs) Because all shepherds are considered a toweva. They're disgusting to the Egyptians. So once you tell them you're a shepherd, They're going to give you the land of Goshen They don't want you anywhere near them Why were shepherds Disgusting to the Egyptians? Surashi says Because the sheep Was one of the deities of Egypt So therefore what? You're taking care of, of my god So I don't like you Why would that cause me not to like you? If anything, you're taking care of the gods Maybe I should like you more Maybe I should respect you for, for grooming them and, and shearing the gods. Comes along the Sif one of the great commentators on Rashi, and he says something astounding. He's explaining Rashi. This is source number 15. Lafi yodin yodin hevoson The Egyptians knew that Son shepherds were always around the sheep, And the shepherds really understood what sheep were. Meaning to say, they're taking care of them, they're shearing them, the sheep are making a mess, they're cleaning up. They understand the sheep are not supernatural. (laughs) Hilkach Yodin She'ain Ba Mamish. Shepherds know there's nothing special about sheep. Hilkach, therefore sonin kol sown. That's why the Egyptians hated all shepherds you Hear that? I'm an Egyptian. I worship sheep They're my God Furry, cozy, and supernatural Yet I hate shepherds who take care of my God Because they know they're not really God And therefore I hate you Somebody asked me a, a glaring question If the reason I hate you is because you know my God is not really God, so then why do I believe in Him? For crying out loud! Get yourself a new religion, young man. Because I only know that deep down. I only know that subconsciously. I know that to a point that I don't want myself to really know that. I want to continue lying to myself because it's more convenient. I don't want to have this cognitive dissonance. I don't want to have this inconsistency. I don't want to have to tell myself I've been living a lie for the last 50 years. So I just try my hardest to push it out of the way by saying I hate you and everything you stand for. That, by the way, and this is parenthetical, but it's also a a massive idea. This is one of the main reasons for anti-Semitism. Why does the whole world hate the Jews? What is that? Where does that come from? And it's a much longer conversation. There are many excuses that are given. But when you you analyze carefully throughout all of history and all different situations and all different economical periods, it comes from the same reason the Egyptians hated shepherds. You remind me of a truth that I don't want to accept. That has been the state of the Jewish people throughout the last 3,300 years. Our very existence is in the face, just by the way we're living or what we're believing, we're reminding people of a truth they don't want to accept, and that can be a source of great hatred. So cognitive dissonance, that causes me to rationalize and make up all sorts of stories. It could cause me to disdain or feel that the thing I can't have is worthless and lacks value. And it could also cause me to hate the person that is constantly reminding me that I'm not doing what I think I I should be doing. It could do one last thing. It could destroy you. And that sounds pretty powerful. That sounds like something we would rather avoid. But sometimes that could actually be planting the seeds for a whole new birth, a whole new reality. There's a famous Midrashic source the story of Eliyahu and the fisherman. This is source number sixteen, the Medrash Tanhuma and Parshas Eliyahu, the great navi, told the following story. He said, "One time I was walking on the road and I found a person. And he was making fun of me. Now, can you believe what a low life you are to make fun of Eliyahu, Hanavi?" But he was mocking and putting down Eliyahu Hanavi. So Lo, I said to him, What are you going to answer on the day of Din when you stand before Hashem and Hashem asks you the question, Lamart the Torah? Did you learn Torah? So the trapper says back to Eliyahu, I have what to answer. I'm not afraid of that. I could just say simply, Hashem didn't give me the, the mind, the brain capacity to understand the Torah. And therefore I have a good excuse why I wasn't learning. Elio says back to the trapper, What do you do for a living? So he goes on to explain, I make traps for birds and for fish. Okay, so again Elio probes further. Who gave you the the ability to discern where exactly you're going to find the fish, how to trap the birds, how to weave the nets? You're doing many complicated things. Who gave you that that brain power? Clearly it's Hashem. So he concluded, sounds like a pretty straightforward argument, if Hashem gave you the brilliance and the resourcefulness to be able to make a living through trapping animals, then that same brain you could also use for learning Torah. What was the response of the trapper? So right there and then, he started crying. He started bawling. He couldn't contain himself. Eventually, Elio had to tell him, Settle down, relax, B'ni, my son, don't feel too bad Many people in this world make the same mistake that you do. So what was it that Eliyahu said that was so penetrating that that, that somehow pierced through all of this sheker, all of the facade of this guy who who was a lowlife to the point where he was making fun of one of the greatest prophets of all time? He has this pretty simple argument that just like brings him down. What was it? It was pointing out His inconsistency. You think you have an excuse that you can't learn because you're not smart? You're very smart. And you could do many things. You could also learn Torah. Sometimes being aware of an inconsistency can bring me to the point where I I can't continue. I I don't feel that I'm able to, to move forward because my whole life is a contradiction. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to feel that way? So the answer is it depends. If that level of, of conflict brings you to a point where you feel, I have to do something different, I'm done rationalizing, I'm done not bringing in my animals and my slaves because I don't want to admit I was wrong, I'm done pretending that December 21st didn't mean anything and Hashem is saving the world because of our, our commitment, I'm done playing those games. If I'm willing and able to actually embrace truth, even though it could be so painful, that level of, of, of cognitive dissonance could bring me into a whole different realm of growth, and that could bring a simcha that I've never experienced before. I remember speaking to many guys in yeshiva. Often, you know, this is a big issue in yeshiva, there's always competition, and everyone's judging each other, he's better than I am, and, and you know, he gets more prestige and, and honor than I do. And uh, I was speaking to one particular fellow, and he was really, he was ois mensch, as we say in Yiddish. He was just, he couldn't go further. He felt like he was the the, the lowest of the the totem pole, he was the bottom of the barrel, whatever analogy you want to use. He said, so-and-so, he never has these issues. He never has these these existential problems that are keeping him up at night and, and feeling bad about himself. And here I am, the loser... Always thinking about how I could and should be doing better. So I shared with him, and I think it's very true those people who Bar Hashem are gifted and talented and they, they float through Yeshiva, not float like they don't try, they could try very hard, and they get a lot of credit and a lot of kavod, and they do very well, Bar Hashem, and they can be wonderful marbitse Torah, people who spread Torah to the masses. But when I'm always doing well, I'm never forced to break down. I'm never forced to ask myself certain questions that most people don't ask themselves. And therefore the growth of those individuals might be nothing in contrast to the growth that you could somehow achieve if you break through these moments. The Gemara says that Rabbi Yosef, he was an Amara, one of the great authors of the Gemara, he passed away momentarily, and he was resuscitated. And when he came back to life, the famous phrase: "What did you see up there?" He said, "Olam hafokreisi. I saw an upside-down world. People who I had so much respect for here in this world, they weren't that much in the next world. And people who were kind of the nothings that we kind of walked past, we never even noticed them. They were they were the ones who respected in the, the olam emes, in the world of truth." Sometimes it's because we're going through these inconsistencies and we're not brushing them off, so therefore it's bothering me more than it's bothering you because you're still lying to yourself. So I'm in more pain than you are, and therefore I don't have the bliss of arrogance. But those are the birth pangs of growth. Inconsistency can lead to greatness. Some people make the mistake that once we have religion, once we have Torah, it's all smooth sailing from there. No need to have any of these struggles. There's a line from from a speech given by Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik in 1944. Source number 17. Religion is not, at the outset, a refuge of grace and mercy for the despondent and the desperate, an enchanted stream for crushed spirits, but a raging, calamitous torrent of man's consciousness with all its crises, pangs, and torments. That's what Torah is also. Because when you're really searching for truth, you're bound to find contradictions within yourself. But that's where, if I keep on pushing and I I refuse to lie to myself, that's where I can really grow and transform from the caterpillar, caterpillar into a butterfly. We say every day in the davening, Yismach Leiv Mevakshe Hashem. Those who are seeking Hashem will rejoice. Funny thing to say. We don't say those who have found Hashem rejoice. Yismach Leiv Mevakshe Hashem. But I think it's all based on this idea. If we're always searching and we're always trying to grab more and more truth and therefore confronting more and more contradictions, but not lying to ourselves, and we keep on pushing forward in relationships, with people, in my connection with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And then although there's plenty of pain, the more Chachma we have, the more pain there is, but through that struggle, we could create a new person. We could become on a higher level, and that yields the greatest Simcha. We should all be Zoha to not... Avoid contradictions, but to be aware of them, not to lie to ourselves, keep on pushing through, and through that struggle, create new people.